0: Welcome to DISCUS, Discussions in Spinal Cord Injury Science, where we bring you interviews with researchers and clinical leaders in spinal cord injury rehabilitation. I'm Rachel Tappan. Today I'll be talking to Dr. George Hornby and Dr. Carrie Holleran about a major effort on both of their parts, the Clinical Practice Guideline to Improve Locomotor Function Following Chronic Stroke, Incomplete Spinal Cord Injury, and Brain Injury, which was recently published in the Journal of Neurologic Physical Therapy. Dr. Hornby is a co author on this CPG. He's also a professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Indiana University School of Medicine, as well as the Director of Knowledge Synthesis for the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. Welcome, George. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And uh, Dr. Halloran is a collaborator on the CPG as well. She's the co-chair of the Locomotor Training Knowledge Translation Task Force, also through the Academy of Neurologic PT. She's also assistant professor of physical therapy at Washington University in St. Louis. And welcome, Carrie. Thank you. Now, I'm I'm hoping that we can get a bit in the weeds on this CPG and how it should and will impact spinal cord injury rehabilitation in particular, which means that we're going to make an assumption that you, dear listeners, have already read this important paper. Uh, So it's currently open access in the January issue of JNPT, the Journal of Neurologic Physical Therapy. If you haven't read it yet, go read it. Our discussion today will be a whole lot more interesting if you do. Uh, There's recommendations related to a variety of interventions to improve walking speed and distance in people with chronic incomplete spinal cord injury, which is our focus today, as well as chronic stroke and brain injury. So um, really important stuff. And with that, Carrie, George, I have got questions for you, too. I thought we'd start with the methodology a bit. So uh, for this CPG, you included diagnoses of chronic incomplete spinal cord injury, stroke, and brain injury. And I certainly see the similarity between stroke and brain injury. Can you talk a bit about why include incomplete spinal cord injury in the mix and why not do a separate CPG for spinal cord injury itself? I mean, besides of course, the extra work, Uh, but maybe you guys can talk a bit about that.
1: So I can go ahead and and address that. So um, to answer the, the second part first, there's not a lot of literature in spinal cord injury alone, particularly with chronic spinal cord injury. So, we would have to uh, increase the size of and the scope of the clinical practice guideline to um, do a subacute and acute spinal cord injury, which would have been fine. However, the, to answer the first part, I think that uh, from my perspective, doing research in this population for a bit, and Carrie can speak to this from her clinical experience and research. That I, I, we felt that spinal cord injury, especially incomplete injury, was somewhat similar to brain injury and uh, stroke, except for, of course, the bilateral nature that you usually see. They all present as upper motor neuron type disorders uh, with paresis, weakness, and spasm, spasticity, and discoordination That's somewhat similar across these diagnoses. The idea that they're both they're all, excuse me, um, acute onset, um, separates spinal cord from other, maybe spinal diseases like multiple sclerosis that could be lumped in as, because they're more degenerative. Um, but that's how we addressed all three together. The other important factor is that we, we, I personally, and I believe that others buy into this, is that when you have a neurological disorder, acute onset, you really are, are working with the spared nervous system that's available. And the idea there is that learning and plasticity in neural circuits is going to rely on these spared circuits more so than different mechanisms of plasticity in different diagnoses. So because they presented somewhat similarly with the upper motor neuron type disorders and because they're acute onset, and that plasticity is probably very similar across these disease processes, we felt like we could combine them.
0: I see. Well, and you mentioned like you could have done a separate CPG around if you had included subacute and chronic spinal cord injury. Um, what's your sense? Do you think the, the recommendations would have ended up being different? Or how would they have been different? I think the recommendations would have been the same.
1: If we include subacute spinal cord injury, there are studies that um, that are very um, well-known, the skilt trial, for example, found that spinal cord injured patients who are receiving bodyweight support treadmill training um, don't improve any more than overground-type training. And so um, that's not something that a lot of therapists who believe in bodyweight support treadmill training want to hear, but, but that's probably, unfortunately, one of the answers that would have come out of that. Um, the number of articles is pretty low, though, in spinal cord injury. This is such, such a more rare disease than stroke, for example. Um, so relying on those similar mechanisms of plasticity in acute onset disorders was really how we felt like we could lump SCI in with the other disorders.
2: Sometimes early after injury with patients with incomplete spinal cord injury, a lot of times you're really considering prognosis. So it's less about the tool, all right, so yes, I do think the active, the recommendations would look the same. The question is for improving walking outcomes, those same interventions, I would think would look the same in subacute SCI. The question is how the patient's going to respond. Um, you know, do they have the prognostic indicators that walking, independent walking is in the cards? I think that's sometimes what clinicians have a hard time wrapping their head around. hmm
0: Mm-hmm. And so the prognostic indicators in acute spinal cord injury that might be a different piece that would go in a CPG that was specific to spinal cord injury that isn't really the same for the whole group. Is that what you're saying?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think certainly that there's going to be, you know, there are some prognostic indicators for stroke and there's certainly prognostic indicators for walking, um, for incomplete spinal cord injury. Um, I don't know much about brain injury, like specific tools or anything that are out there. I'd assume they'd be Mm -hmm. pretty similar to stroke on top of what's the cognitive status of the patient, but that becomes a big determining factor of who do you think is actually gonna respond to the interventions that we know are appropriate um, or known to improve walking-related outcomes. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I can certainly see how that'd be an important part of a CPG that involved acute anything really, um, but since we're talking about spinal cord injury today, for acute spinal cord injury. Right. Got it. Well, so maybe we can switch focus a little bit and talk about that the action statement that was specific to robotic-assisted walking training. So I'm just gonna go ahead and quote from the CPG, so from the paper, I should say. Um, so it states that, Uh, quote, clinicians should not perform walking interventions with exoskeleton robotics on a treadmill or elliptical devices. Um, And so, you know, as I think this through, like, this is really a rapidly changing area of research. And, you know, the literature, you know, as with any CPG, right, it takes time to put it together. So this is really... Only literature up to December 2016. So does that recommendation still hold true? What does that mean for, say, overground robotic devices, which seems like is maybe more prevalent in the literature now? What are what are your guys' thoughts?
1: I think what's important when people look at the actual action statements to understand why a certain recommendation was um, provided. And so it's not so much the robot that's not the best thing in the world. It could be helpful for certain populations, but we are talking about chronic, mostly ambulatory patients with spinal cord injury. And now you're going to have a robot help someone who can already walk even a little bit. So when that happens, people relax. It's the slacking factor of principle of laziness. And whether that happens on a treadmill or an elliptical or over ground, something Shouldn't be helping the patient walk too much because the patient has to generate effort, muscular activity to actually move their own. And that's how the system changes quicker versus just passive movement.
2: And when you think about it, it's what are those active ingredients that are causing the change in the outcome? So, what is it that's really causing the change? in the walking improvements. And it's really what the patient is doing. So it doesn't matter if they're doing it over ground on the treadmill with or without robotics. What we know happens when patients are in robotics is just like George expressed, they don't work hard. And we know that that's a critical training parameter. So that's why likely that recommendation is that we should not use robotics.
0: So as as I hear both of you talk about this, I hear There's two pieces that stood out to me. One is, of course, the intensity. (laughs) Got that part loud and clear. So if there was some system where someone... Well, and then the other piece, I should say, is that, um, George, you mentioned that these are folks who, for the most part, can walk without the robot. Um, And so I guess I'm just wondering then, what does that mean for, say, scenarios where if somebody is non-ambulatory, would that make a robot more applicable or no, or if um, or if there's some design of a robot that allows for um, the person using the the robot to achieve that higher intensity training does that does that change I don't want to say change the recommendation, but does that change how we, we as clinicians maybe should apply the recommendations
1: Well a couple of things related to that what there's a subacute locomotor CPG that will be coming out in the next few years, and they're just they've just started their process. So I think that those those robotic devices overground or treadmill will be addressed in patients with incomplete spinal cord injury at that point. If someone's extremely weak and non-ambulatory, um, the idea there is that you you probably need to help them somewhat, and that requires some body weight support and that requires some physical assistance. And you can provide that with therapists and or robotics um, or you know just body weight support, kind of mechanical but non-robotic type tools. The, that is all fine. And if you can get them stepping at all, I think that's better than non-walking. The problem that they, some of these robotics have and even therapists have, is we tend to help too much. And so if if we're able to kind of back off the assistance and, and let the person work hard, going back to that intensity piece, that actually is going to be really important. Now, there are devices on the treadmill and likely over ground that will give assist as needed, and that's, that's better. But the problem is if someone relaxes for a few steps and the robot will just take over for them. And then you get into that kind of passive mode of activation again where the person isn't as engaged or isn't working as hard, and so the intensity drops down. All that, is, all that could be bad, but if you, as a therapist, put a heart rate monitor on and encourage them to work hard and give them feedback, then all those things may be mitigated. But you want to let them all obviously do the task on their own at some point when they're able to.
0: Mm-hmm. Point well taken. So thinking about all of the, the action statements from the CPG and really all of the findings from the CPG, were there any findings that surprised you or which one surprised you the most, I guess? I know I was surprised by the the virtual
2: reality recommendation. I don't know that I had necessarily an expectation, but I didn't know that it would land on the, the should-do intervention list. I mean, it makes sense from a salience and uh, perspective, engaging the patient, making it feel real world. Um, So, it sort of makes sense looking back on it, but I don't know that I expected that it would be the strength of the recommendation that it currently is. I think some of the limitations, and George can speak to the methodology, is within those recommendations, the studies that were done with virtual reality, there's less um, clarity on the intensity parameters, on the dosing parameters, which likely, as we see across the CPG, are influential on the outcomes. So, I think that... Um, more detail is is needed a little bit for us to understand exactly how to implement virtual reality because it is an expensive endeavor for clinics. Um, If you have it, though, this this CPG would tell you to go ahead and use it um, if the patient is interested in it and wants to do it.
0: And and Carrie, if we can skip to the implementation part for just a moment, the implementation side of things, how do you see this getting implemented in the clinic? I mean, most clinics don't have a virtual reality system. are there certain systems or versions of virtual reality that you would anticipate would be easier to adopt or that will be more early adopted? I don't know that I
2: know specific systems that I could cite but any any system where you're engaged in sort of whatever mobility you need to navigate to go through your community or to go through your your world to help engage you into the really the task specific, intense practice that you need to do for walking. Um, So I think that if clinics have, you know, whatever Wii system device or um, whatever virtual rally system that they have, if it's feasible to use it on top of walking, I think that you kind of find creative ways to use it in practice.
0: Mm -hmm. Sure. George, how about you? Which, Which findings surprised you the most? I just want to talk about Carrie's piece, too. It's not so much the virtual reality, and just to be a little
1: facetious for a sec, there's not something magical coming through your retina that's making your nervous system work harder. It's really just engaging. So that principle of just salience, engaging the patient, making them do a task outside of rote walking might be really helpful. And it didn't matter what virtual reality system was used, and every virtual reality system was different across every study. So... Certainly not anything special about the system. It's just getting some, them engaged. If you are asking me, which she did, what what surprised me, I would say the, the strength training one surprised me most and the body weight support treadmill training. Um, the strength training, because strength is the primary determinant underlying walking dysfunction in patients across these three di- diagnoses. And really high-intensity strengthening, which is what all these studies were, didn't actually turn out to be successful. And that was the first one we as a CPG group went through, and I was stunned at how it wasn't close enough to, to be a recommended intervention, and, and that's fine. It's just data and numbers, and, and you know, 50% of the time researchers are wrong. It's called hypothesis testing. Um, with body weight support treadmill training, I I thought that at a minimum it would be may recommend. Like I thought the data was pretty neutral um, before coming in, and you know um, we split up the recommendations and the data, and Darcy Reisman tackled that area, and um, I, I believed her, but obviously I went through every paper and. It just, it just wasn't close to being even a may recommend. There were, there were so many studies that indicated that bio-esport treadmill training was just as good as something else. And if that's true, then why put all that money into a harness and three people moving the legs? Um, and so that was, that was a little eye-opening to me. And the fact that I had done it for years and really believed that that was going to work at one point in my life, um, and then to see all the data come out. that was um, that was that was stunning,
0: yeah. Will you clarify for me, as I'm thinking back through my reading over the CPG, you know there's body weight supported treadmill training, and then there's just treadmill training where we might use a harness for safety, but not for body weight support. So that action statement, is specifically around using body weight support. Is that correct? Well, there's, there's, a, there's a good pickup on the CPG and that, that requires people read this
1: and carefully, hopefully, that what happens in most of these studies with body weight support is you tend to have multiple therapists assisting the legs. And that is similar to a robotic intervention where if someone can already do a task, again, most were walking on their own, Why would you have people help them? And so it gets again to probably cutting down the intensity of the task and that probably contributed to the limited outcomes compared to any other rehab task that was chosen. So it's not so much the body weight support, although that doesn't help because that's going to take off weight and that will reduce muscle activity for keeping yourself upright but It's also the physical assistance that therapists often apply during the training
0: got it, and then i guess I guess where I was going with my question too though is I think of with body weight supported treadmill training, there's two pieces to that there's the body weight support piece and the treadmill piece, and is the the treadmill versus overground distinction important there or or no i
1: I think so um I think the treadmill versus body weight support piece is the important distinction. Like a treadmill is is just really convenient to get a lot of practice in, and if you have a safety harness and you don't apply body weight support, well, that's just keeping them upright just in case they trip and fall. We do that all the time. Um, We won't have body weight support a lot or even if at all, and we won't have therapists helping them, only if they need it will we help them. So just walking on a treadmill and getting the heart rate up and will give you a lot of task-specific practice at high intensity, which is those active ingredients that Carrie mentioned.
0: So the treadmill training, you know, maybe with a harness for safety, but without actually lifting up any of the body weight, that sort of falls under action statement number one of the the moderate to high intensity walking training, whereas this action statement around the body weight-supported treadmill training is like really that body weight support is the added the added piece. Do I have that right? The body weight support right. and the physical. And the assistance, yeah.
2: I think that's really important for therapists not to confuse because I use a treadmill with a harness used only as a catch in my clinical practice almost all the time, or at least for some portion of my session because it allows me, like George said, to get a, a large amount of practice, get patients walking faster than they may be comfortable with and getting their heart rate quickly up in the beginning of the session before I maybe transition them to overground or stairs or variable environments. Um, So it's, it's, it's not about necessarily the tool, it's how you use it. And that's what's really important for the therapist to consider when they go to implement these action statements into clinical practice.
0: Well, I guess I'll just chime in then too, because, because I'm here and I guess I get to also say, I'll say clinically, like whether it's on the treadmill or overground, having a harness for safety, I'd say has been a real, you know, I've been doing this a long time. I've been a clinician over 20 years and, it's one of the biggest practice changers of like, I can take risks is the wrong word, but I, I can have patients attempt things that might not have been safe without that harness in place, or it wouldn't have been consistently safe. So yeah, big big game changer, but helpful to know sort of where that lies in the, in the CPG. Well, another question for both of you then, uh, we talked about which finding surprised you the most. Let's talk... Let's talk controversy. Have, which findings have been the most controversial or do you anticipate will be the most controversial, if any?
2: I mean, I can speak to some of the feedback that I've gotten um, from therapists when we give presentations as part of the KT Task Force. And it's not necessarily around implementation of activities. I think it's sort of the discomfort of de-implementing or taking out of practice. Some of those interventions that maybe therapists have used for a long time um, you know, we get comfortable in what we what we believe works, what we've done for the last however many years you've been in practice, and practice and behavior change is really hard. Um, so I think some of those those do-nots or should-not practices where we're really saying, okay, if your patient meets the inclusion of a CPG and they want to improve walking-related outcomes, these are the things that you shouldn't do. And so I think that that's been maybe one of the harder things for therapists that have used these interventions for quite some time to really look at how I'm going to take them out of my practice and not prioritize them anymore.
0: Mm. Yeah. When I, you know, when I think back on changes in clinical practice that have happened and that I've made since I was uh, first starting out, you know, new evidence came along and it really required a lot of self-reflection and humility, and requires a lot of ref- self-reflection and humility to let go of things that I was doing before. Or maybe reprioritize interventions based on a new evidence that comes along. You know, even though the old thing had seemed so powerful and really may well have been best practice at the time, um, it, that that time where change needs to happen can be can be tough. That's that's tough stuff. It is, and I I think if we keep the focus
2: uh, though, instead of sort of on what we think or that our interventions are tied to sort of our success as therapists. We just have to view it as how are we going to continually evolve so that the patient gets the utmost benefit. And I know all therapists, you know, they want to help their patients. And so maybe flipping it and looking at it from a different perspective of, oh, well, now I know this data suggests that this is going to help my patient more. Um, and kind of riding that tide. I'm, I'm hoping we'll flip the messaging and really view it as it's not necessarily about you and that you're wrong and that, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's really about your patient and how can we be nimble and flexible and change for their, their betterment.
0: I love it. Yeah, let's focus on the things that we need to do going forward. and And really, then hopefully things will continue to evolve, right? So that, you know, here, let's hope that Twenty years from now, we'll know so much more that we'll look back on what we're doing now and think, you know, "Gee, wasn't that quaint? Look at look at all of these new tools we have and the new evidence that we have and um, that we we know so much more than than what we did then." And look how far we've come. That that would be terrific.
1: I think we do that now.
0: I, oh, for sure! Yeah, absolutely. I, that's, that's I was just doing that, I guess, for my own self. Thinking back, you know, the twenty years ago and the things I was doing that I now shake my head.
1: Yeah, to your point, though. I mean, people will latch onto that technique or whatever they do, and that that is um, what defines them as a therapist. And now you come in with a recommendation that tells them that that may not be the right thing to do. That's that's extraordinarily difficult. That's changing their livelihood, how they've done things for decades. And so they, that's not a message you want to hear. So any of those three recommendations that say don't do this, we've gotten pushback on that. And we continue to get pushback. And, and we go back to the data. You know, we're arguing against numbers. And you know, a lot of times these numbers don't lie.
2: And mm-hmm. I think it just like what you mentioned, George, this idea of what defines us, and, and I would like to believe that what defines our profession is sort of our, our ability to, to be nimble and flexible, to use the evidence, to Im- figure out unique ways to implement it, to try to have clinical practice be as reflective of what we understand to be true in research or evidence in our own, in our own clinic. So how can we, what are the skills that we have at doctoral training level? to say, here's a piece of evidence, and here's how I'm going to work really hard in a coordinated interdisciplinary fashion with my team members and make this evidence come to light in the clinic. And that's really skillful. And that is really what we want to do and to define our profession as.
0: I love it. Well, and so actually, on that note, then, Carrie, you're involved in the, um, or no, not just involved, the co-chair of the task force that is taking the lead on implementing some of these locomotor training strategies in the clinic. So uh, what's the plan? How will, how will this all get translated? Yeah, so our, our plan is kind of like a spider web. We
2: have a lot of things going at one time and um, we have a lot of efforts that are sort of in tandem. Um, and we'd like to impact as many stakeholders as we can. So we have online tools for clinicians to utilize in clinical practice. Um, we're working right now with the online education KT Summit folks to help us develop education through the Synapse Center. We are have a project going right now where we're collaborating with neurologic residency programs from across the country to, you know, what are the commonly reported barriers that we know to be true from the literature and from a recent practice survey that we sent out through the ANPT And having sort of teaming up residencies together from across the country to work in teams to say, here's this barrier. Now, how are we going to overcome it? What's our strategy? Um, We've been doing social media blasts. We've had an education session at CSM. We've been in the student conclave. Um, So our hope is really just to reach a diverse set of stakeholders that would include patients, payers, caregivers, and basically just spread the word as much as we can to help. Um, streamlined practice around the recommended action statements within the
1: CPG.
0: Okay. Any any specific recommendations, say, for maybe a clinician who's listening, who is thinking, yep, I'm ready. I'm going to implement these things in my clinic and help my department or my organization implement these. Any tips that you would give them that are concrete that you could share?
2: Yeah, I think that the first thing you really need to understand about your own local context is what truly are the barriers? What really deep down are the barriers to implementing, you know, high-intensity gate training into your clinical environment? Um, as an example, we were just meeting with the residency programs um, at CSM, and we had uh, one site that we were talking about just this, just this idea. What are the true barriers um, in your clinic? And we talked for probably 30 minutes around the bush, and what it really came back to was that therapists just at their heart of hearts did not believe in the recommended action statements and were still very much um, clinging hold of those, you know, should not do recommendations. That's a really important thing to be able to identify because if if you're starting to adopt all these strategies and they don't really target the specific barriers in your clinical context, you're just not gonna have as much success. So if it's equipment that's a barrier, if it's, you know, um, stakeholder or managerial engagement that's an issue. If it's, you, know, you really have to figure out what is limiting you to implement those should-do recommendations in the clinic, which takes a bit of time and a lot of talking to figure out what those are.
0: Ah, so figuring out within your, within your department even, what are the barriers um, before you even decide how you're going to go about it? Exactly. You really have to understand what's
2: limiting the practice or what's limiting the implementation of the practice.
0: Probably good advice for any change anyone ever wants to make in a clinic at any time, ever, about anything. Right on. Well. I think with that, actually, I, let's. I think we'll go ahead and wrap it up. I, George and Carrie, I want to thank you guys so much for the discussion um, and and for the important work you've done here uh, on the on the CPG. It's um, it's big stuff. Thank Thanks, you, great. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. I hope that you enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to next time.